Um, welcome to IPPR, uh, and to this, which is the latest in our series of occasional book launch events, which we're very pleased to be hosting in conjunction with the Oxford Martin School. Um, sorry to keep you inside on a very sunny lunchtime, um, but hopefully we'll have a, a great discussion. We've got a, an excellent lineup here, some great panellists, uh, and I'm sure we're going to have a very interesting event today. Um, my name is Alex Glenny, I'm a research fellow here, and I work on issues of globalisation, migration and development, and have most recently been involved in a major year-long project led by uh, Lord Peter Mandelson on the future of globalisation. A uh, lot of overlap between what we've been working on and what Ian's been working on, so it's great that he's able to come in today and talk to us about his book. Um, I have copies of our report on your seats, and we also have copies of Ian's book, which I think that his team are going to be selling at the back, so just to get the plugs out of the way first. Um, the book is, is fantastic. It's looking at the, um, the impact of globalisation on poverty and really sort of interrogating the idea that globalisation necessarily leads to reductions in global poverty, saying that the relationship is much more <coughs> complex than that, which is certainly something that we found in our own research. Um, so Ian's going to talk about the, uh, sort of the major themes of the book, and then we're going to have a, a panel discussion uh, with a sort of excellent group here. We also have Krishnara Ali, who's the Shadow Secretary for International Development and also MP for Bethnal Green and Bow. We've got Nick Gowing, who's been working with Ian at the Oxford Martin School on issues relating to the vulnerabilities of power, and I think he might sort of introduce some of that in, a bit in his comments. And then we also have Jamie Drummond from the One Organization, um, the co-founder and executive director of One, which was launched in 2008. Um, so we're going to start with Ian, we're going to kick off with a presentation from him of about 20-25 minutes. And then, no? Yeah, I'll be 10 minutes. Okay, 10 minutes then. Uh, and then maybe sort of 10 minute interventions from the rest and then leave plenty of time for questions and discussion at the end. Thanks. Thanks very much uh, Alex and thanks to uh, IPR for hosting it. Uh, this discussion, I thought that the recent report that uh, you did on globalization uh, was really an excellent way of thinking about some of the big long-term issues and very complementary to the work I've been doing. I'm particularly grateful to um, my co-panelists uh, for promoting the book. <laughs> I'll stand here. But to Rishanara Ali, Nick Gowing and Jamie Drummond for coming. I mean, they're all incredibly busy and uh, I, I hope it's, it's because they, of the importance that they hold these issues to be, that they've uh, made time today to be. And thanks to all of you for coming. What, I, what I'll do very briefly, uh, because I can't give you too much, otherwise you won't read the book, uh, is give you some of the reasons why I wrote the book and where I think it takes us. The principal reason that um, I felt this was worth investing serious time in is that globalization, although it's the most powerful force affecting the planet today uh, for everyone, but particularly for poor people. Uh, although it is that powerful force, it's also perhaps the least understood. And the debates that have tended to develop around globalization uh, have generated an intense heat and um, unfortunately very little light, indeed smoke mostly. So what the book aims to do is to throw a little bit of light on some dimensions, namely the economic dimensions, of globalization. It clearly isn't about all dimensions. It doesn't deal with many, many aspects, peace and war, um, culture, and many other important dimensions. 
of globalization, but it tries to look at the flows, the economic flows. And it's unusual, I think, in perhaps two respects. Um, the first is that it deals with what I consider to be all the principal economic flows. So there are a lot of books on finance, there are a lot of books on trade, there are books on migration, um, and there are many, many treatises on aid. But as far as I'm aware, there's no other volume that brings together finance, trade, aid, migration. And critically, uh, what's left out of, I think, all debates is ideas. How connectivity leads to the flow of ideas around the world and across borders. And the reason why I include ideas in this economic analysis is because I think they are, in economics as in all other spheres, the most powerful influence on development. And unless one understands the manufacture of ideas, their transmission uh, and adaptation, uh, implementation, one can't begin to understand the force of globalization. And it's particularly pleasing in that respect not only have on the panel with me the Shadow Minister of, of Aid and Development for the UK Government, but also um, Nick Gowing uh, and Jamie Drummond, who've been intimately tied up in their lives in different ways with how ideas get transmitted uh, and mobilized around the world. And I thought that was very important for this message. And then the book ends with an analysis of the broad policy conclusions. Now, the significance of this book, which is a totally revised edition of a book I first did in 2005, about 70% new, has grown uh, since I first worked on this in the first edition in 2005. And it's grown because the level of connectivity has grown. So the hyper-connectivity of the world makes this transmission of all these flows um, more intense but also because what we've become aware of over the last three years is the intensity of systemic risks. So globalization, as I argue in the book, is the most powerful progressive force that the world has ever known, but it's potentially also the most powerful destructive force the world has ever known. And it's that balance between how connectivity is managed, the upside is harvested, and the dangers of hyperconnectivity, of systemic risk, are managed. That is really the most challenging thing, I think, for policymakers around the world. Because poor people and poor societies everywhere are most vulnerable to risk, they are most vulnerable to the negatives associated with the transmission of bad things through globalization. Bad ideas, financial crises, climatic shocks, pandemics, other dimensions of but also because they are most desperately in need of escaping their poverty. They are potentially the people that would benefit and the societies that would benefit most from globalization. The paradox then <coughs> is that for many people, the problem isn't too much globalization, but too little. Uh, in other words, for the societies of the Sahel, <coughs> for the societies of Central Asia and elsewhere, the fact that they had not been able to benefit from many dimensions of globalization, be they medicine, health, trade opportunities, or other opportunities, that has trapped them in poverty. And crucially, and this is why migration is so important <coughs> in this book, because they have not been able to migrate. So let me do a very, very quick Cook's tour of the book. The start of the book is a discussion 
of poverty and what we mean by poverty and how it's changed over time. And it makes the crucial point that if you look at the long term, like the last 200 years, and try and correlate openness with connectivity as measured, for example, by trade with poverty reduction, there's no direct correlation. The arguments which are intense around the relationship between trade and poverty reduction are in the overall, I think, subject to immense overriding by all sorts of other considerations. In other words, the policies. Who benefits from trade? What does trade do? Does it bring the opportunities for people? Or does it just nurture a very small elite? So the, the analysis on that is necessarily circumscribed by my own uh, narrow view as an economist. I mainly focus on income poverty rather than many other dimensions of poverty. Uh, and clearly, those other dimensions are important. What the book shows is that since the 1990s, there's been a structural change, a step change, in the intensity of connectivity. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the opening up of China, the ending of dictatorships in over 63 countries around the world, including in my own country, South Africa, was associated with a structural step change in the level of all societies' connectivity. And there's really only one society in the world now that is not connected, and that's North Korea. But virtually everywhere else has degrees of connectivity which are structurally different to before 1990. What has that done for poverty reduction? The argument I make is that it's been extraordinarily beneficial to many, but there have been well over 2 billion people that have not benefited from this process. The data on poverty are always difficult to get one's head around, but clearly, if one looks at the data on China and on India, a number of other places, there has been extraordinary, unprecedented in history, wealth creation, income creation. But over two billion people left out. The focus then goes through the different dimensions, through finance, through trade, through aid, migration, and ideas and policy. The main point I'd make on trade is that the scandal of OECD agricultural subsidies, which remain at over $240 billion, well over double the levels of aid, bizarrely continues. At a time when the economic arguments have been exhausted, as far as I can see, the political arguments for the sorts of protectionism that occurs are nonsensical, and the environmental arguments around the extremely destructive effect of these subsidies are mounting policies continue and the Doha round is stuck in the morass. So this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy because all the evidence points to wise opening up of markets would lead to major benefits for developing countries. The increased price instability in the world, the increased level of prices uh, of food products is also associated with this. Now it's not the case that all trade liberalization is good and that certainly I hope not a message you'll take from the book. It has to be nuanced. It has to be in the context of special policies and differential policies for low-income countries. And it also has to recognize that illicit trade, trade in arms, trade in slaves, trade in other areas, are the underbelly of trade. 
Uh, about 10% of trade is illicit, and so trade goes up, so does illicit trade. How one manages this, how one ensures that good things are traded and the bads are not, is extremely important. The chapter on finance and capital flows highlights the very, very narrow and unhealthy way that these financial flows work, the, the extremely low level relative to income or domestic mobilization of finance in emerging markets. Although a great deal is made of financial flows, they typically are 2 to 4% of countries' flows. So they, the question is, what do they do? If they don't leverage development, if they don't have beneficial uh, outcomes, their effectiveness is greatly curtailed. And I spent quite a lot of time in this chapter thinking about the systemic risk issues around that. The aid chapter uh, highlights the continued failure of the OECD countries to live up to their 1970s promise, the steps forward, but still the massive path still to be achieved. Um, and this really is about the fact that per capita aid remains lower now than it was in the 1980s uh, to Africa. So at a time when poor countries in need have never been better managed, and I think we all understand that in terms of the macro and the governance, in a time that the rich countries have never been richer, we bizarrely are giving them less money on all sorts of new excuses. There's much to be said on aid, but I won't dwell on that. Again, the point is that these are small flows relative to what happens in countries, but extremely significant. The migration chapter draws very heavily on my new book, um, Exceptional People, How Migration Shaped the World and Will Define Our Future. And basically what this migration chapter shows is that migration has always been the most important way that people escape poverty. It has always been the way that people escape famine, climate change, wars, and conflict. And none of us would be in this room if our forefathers had not taken the migration path to escape problems in the past. This has been forgotten. It's been untied from the aid debate. Uh, and as a result, people are trapped in poverty. There's no doubt that poverty cannot be escaped without massive changes in migration policy, not least within regions like Africa. The book looks at detail at these questions of remittances, brain drain, brain waste, uh, and other areas. And these, of course, are important. The chapter on ideas makes the point that ideas are the most powerful factor influencing development that it's ideas in the end that matter, how to do things, how to escape poverty, how to implement policies. Not all ideas are good, of course. My living under apartheid uh, shows very demonstratively how ideas can be tragic. But the battle of ideas, pushing out bad ideas more quickly, and ensuring that good ideas take their place requires engagement. It requires acknowledging that in the end that's what matters. It's who wins the political battles, who wins the policy battles, what evidence they have, and what is the relationship of the scientists, the academics, the scholars, and social communities and others to formulating these ideas. In the end, as the book concludes, it's about policies. Globalization is neither good nor bad. It's potentially the most powerful force for development, 
it's also the potentially the most destructive force. And so what the final chapter does is provides a menu of the different topics I cover and highlights some policies which would be beneficial for development. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian, for a very concise overview of the book uh, and offers lots of issues that we might discuss later in the question and answer session. Um, I'll hand over next to Rishnara to, to respond. Thank you. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here at the new offices of IPPR, where I once, once a very long time ago worked, um, just in Southampton Street. But you can't imagine how intimidated I was to come back to IPPR, <laughs> probably because I felt like I didn't want to leave, leave, leave my side down. And so um, it's a great pleasure to um, uh, follow after Professor Goldings. Um, and I also want to congratulate you all for your, the report you, you've written um, on this subject. I think for too long there's been a lot of debate about this without enough of the evidence, without enough of a sense of the, the pros and cons of globalization. Uh, so you had the civil society movements um, in the late, late 90s and early noughties uh, uh, in the US and, and elsewhere. But, but not often uh, have we had, and we've rarely had the evidence base and thinking to really get to grips with um, why, why globalization matters, where the positive value is, and where the challenges are, and what it means for policymakers, politicians, uh, uh, citizens, and of course civil society organizations. <coughs> um, and I think, uh, obviously, um, Professor Goldens has already set out uh, some key, uh, some of the, the major issues around globalization. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not going to go into too much of the detail and the, and the facts, uh, but I'm looking forward to reading the book. Uh, I've just got it, uh, reading the book thoroughly. Um, and I know that it will inform our thinking in the Shadow International Development Team, uh, team for the Labour Party. Uh, I think this idea of globalization being a powerful, progressive, um, you know, hugely progressive uh, uh, idea uh, and progressive in it what, what it can achieve uh, as well as destructive uh, consequences is really really um, important for us to think about for those of us on the center left not least because we have a lot of reflections to make at the Labour Party in terms of where our um, uh, our, our start, starting point was in the 90s and, and during the time in government and where we achieved a great deal but where we perhaps did not look closely enough both at home and abroad in developing countries to understand the significance of uh, what free markets, free trade can mean, both in terms of its potential for tackling poverty, uh, reducing poverty through trade, where the policies are uh, appropriate, as, as Professor Golden has highlighted, but where um, overlooking the impact on the ground, whether it's here at home in the east end of London in my constituency, or Barking and Dagenham, or in the northern cities that have had industrial decline uh, and then have not had uh, alternative forms of employment uh, being replaced by that decline, or in the developing countries, whether in African countries or in Asian countries, uh, uh, those are the themes that actually bring us together, um, uh, you know, whether we're sitting in the UK or in, in uh, uh, Bangladesh or, or India or China. So this is a debate that's absolutely critical for all of us. And I think for, for us as a, as a Labour Party, 
the thinking uh, <coughs> that uh, the thinking that's going on in the party is very exciting. Uh, I know that uh, uh, everyone's uh, keen for us to return to power, and we are too. And there's a vibrant amount of thinking going on uh, about what uh, what it means to live in a globalized world. What does uh, what does it mean to have responsible capitalism? And Ed's speech in the last conference, uh, Labour Party conference, which did uh, uh, in, in, uh, lead to uh, considerable criticism, but also actually led the way, has led the way in getting people to think about what it means to have uh, uh, a, a trade and uh, <laughs> responsible capitalism, and what the role and roles and responsibilities are for politicians, government, citizens, business, and course the media and I think in that context this debate is, is critical <coughs> when we look at the, uh, the uh, situation around the world whether it's the Arab Spring and the push that's coming from citizens uh, um, we we've got to situate this debate in the context of where the pressures are coming from and I think politicians in the government are uh, whether they're in opposition or in government are gonna have to think much much faster and adapt faster to where citizens are and you only have to look at what, what's happening in the Arab Spring and even in countries like Russia uh, and in many of the uh, African states where citizens organizing and pressure and social media is beginning to move rapidly and push governments to move faster than they would have perhaps otherwise liked to and I think this, I, this point about ideas and innovation uh, is absolutely critical uh, and how we organize movements uh, uh, as um, civil society organizations or as political parties is going to be central to the way we shift um, uh, shift our approach to um, moving towards a more progressive globalization, more progressive uh, capitalism, if you like. I want to take two examples because I think they kind of, two country examples, because I think they kind of cement the debates around um, where the challenges and opportunities are for globalization. So if you are, if you are uh, as I was, uh, someone coming from, I was born in a developing country, Bangladesh, uh, and I came here when I was very young. Um, if you are coming from a developing country perspective, actually when you talk to people, they want, they want to trade, they want the opportunities, they want to be able to benefit from glo globalization. Uh, uh, and in a way, the best examples of that are China and <coughs> India. So China has doubled its GDP in 10 years. It took the US 40 years uh, in the 20th century uh, to do the same. It took the UK 50 years in the 19th century to do the same. And it's advancing at the pace of Europe, industrializing in the space of a few decades what we did in 200 years. Now that is incredible. And I think that we cannot underestimate the signal that sends to other developing countries, whether in Africa or other parts of Asia, at being able to rapidly grow and advance. Um, when you take the poverty reduction numbers, and I know that this is much more complex uh, as you pointed out, but if we just take the numbers, the, the World Bank numbers or even the, uh, the, um, the other official numbers, uh, poverty has been reduced by 683 million since the 1990s in China. Uh, now, trade and, and liberalization uh, and the economic opportunities has clearly helped, although there are huge, huge inequalities. Uh, and 
when you look at the challenges facing uh, the country in terms of income inequalities, in terms of the urban-rural divides, uh, the move from uh, the, the unequal treatment of those coming from the countryside to work in the cities and so on all over China, and of course the uh, civil unrest that often go unnoticed, that poses the, the um, problem of potential destructive, uh, the potential destructive impact of globalization for a country. <coughs> Then, then let's take the example of India, which is a lot further behind in terms of tackling poverty. And you have more people in poverty, most of you will know that this, um, more people in poverty in India than in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, concentrations of poverty in some key states, which is why we support the position that the UK government has continued to follow, um, which is to continue aid for the foreseeable future to India to try, help, try and help reduce the poverty levels but gradually make the exit strategy so that India can take responsibility for its own poor and develop the social welfare systems that are required to, to address those challenges. Um, but India gives you another fascinating example of innovation, a growing middle class, although not big enough, not, not as big as people might assume. Uh, uh, but, but in time, we will see that and the huge spending potential both in, those in both those countries uh, and the opportunities that are presented to us in the future uh, in terms of trading opportunities for Europe and America, although that's going to take some time. Uh, <coughs> now, one of, the, one of the questions for us is, in a country like India, where there are 400 million people still living uh, below the poverty line, what is the role of development aid? What is the role for corrective forces, both within and externally? And I, and I think, just to throw out some ideas at this stage, and, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, I think one of the questions for those countries like India and China is how do we move towards a situation where they're actually net contributors to aid and development? Now, they are doing that in Africa. Often it's because of economic interests. So how can they come into the global system, not just in terms of trading, but in terms of development and aid, to, put, to operate as responsible world uh, governments, uh, where they're playing a much more appropriate role in terms of tackling uh, poverty uh, and working together with developing countries. The second point in relation to India and China is actually to do with what we can share and learn. Uh, and I think too often, even, even in centre-left governments, there has been an attitude of paternalism, and we need to make a shift away from paternalism to partnership. So that means, where are the lessons that could be learned uh, about um, how they have performed these economic, quote-unquote, miracles? What can we learn from them? Of course, there are lots of negatives, but there are huge positives. The space for innovation and ideas is critical, both in terms of in business innovation but also social innovation. I think that for the West, for countries like uh, the UK, there's a lot to learn. To, to, there's a lot to teach, but or, or a lot to learn. There's a lot to teach in terms of our systems, the ones that are working, the social welfare systems that do work, that developing countries or middle-income countries are wanting and interested in learning about, whether it's our national health system, which is, I know, under assault at the moment, but of great interest to the Chinese uh, and, and many other countries. So we, you know, we need to think about what we can uh, offer to other parts of the world that we haven't, off we've often taken for granted that they're very interested in, certainly the Chinese are. Um, and, and I think other countries are. So there's a huge amount that we can share and learn uh, in both directions, but that genuinely needs to happen, and that needs to be based on partnership. I think the, uh, I, I just want to just make a couple of quick points about technology. I think uh, 
as, as Professor Goldings was, uh, was saying, the potential for technology and acceleration of technology and what it does across trade, across governance, across uh, citizens organizing is absolutely incredible. And we can see that both in terms of the way that people are organizing themselves, arguably better in the Arab world uh, than in the Western world. Um, uh, the Occupy movement has had uh, some interest in the media, but it hasn't led to uh, radical overthrow of governments. Not that I'm promoting that at the moment, although I wouldn't <laughs> mind seeing it happen. Um, but you know, if you look at that, in if you look at the way citizens have organised themselves in the um, in 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 terms of the Arab Spring, then obviously. What's, what's interesting about that is the way that technology and uh, organizing has come together face-to-face uh, -to -face and, to, and the use of social media and so on. Um, and the challenge to governments. Uh, uh, now, that's not just, con that can't, I don't think that's just something that's confined to those countries. Uh, I think that this is an important uh, lesson for all governments and all political parties. We need to be faster at being able to catch up with what citizens want. Uh, and technology is accelerating uh, both in, in terms of t trade, uh, but also the way people organize themselves. So if political systems and governance systems, international or domestic ones, don't move fast enough, don't catch up, then I think you're going to have more disjuncture between, between these forces and more resentment and more anger and instability. Um, in terms of the domestic scenario, I think we, as the Labour movement, as the Labour Party in government, we often overlooked, uh, to our detriment, the effects of um, globalisation at home. And if you take the example of uh, the economic benefits, of course, you can't deny, no one can deny the economic benefits of globalisation uh, in terms of, um, uh, in, t in terms of uh, the macroeconomic picture, but certainly in local communities, whether it's in, in the East End of London and, and as I said, in, in other cities, there have been huge concerns, and that's because of the anxiety that was created and the downward pressure on wages and uh, opportunities for those at the bottom. Uh, and that wasn't matched enough, I would argue, with support skills and opportunities for people to make the transition into new forms of employment. Uh, so that often put people in competition. And I think that's something we cannot underestimate the significance of in the UK and countries like this, uh, uh, and the dangers uh, here at home of globalization. That's not an argument for protectionism, but it is an argument for investing in our own population, in training, education, skills, uh, so that they can be in a position to compete with uh, more open uh, migration where that's necessary. Uh, and of course there are huge political constraints on migration, but we need to make sure that those who are facing unemployment, who are facing worklessness, uh, have those opportunities. And it's often that those at the bottom miss out, both in developed countries as well as developing countries, from the opportunities for globalization. And in just moving on in terms of what, uh, where our thinking is going as the Labour Party, um, uh, as the party in opposition, um, we have an incredibly proud record, I would say, of uh, working to tackle poverty in developing countries when we were in power. Um, in terms of the 0.7% uh, uh, commitment that we made, which this government is continuing with, in terms of the um, uh, Millennium Development Goal contributions uh, and the uh, uh, support that was provided to developing countries ranging from debt relief uh, and so on and so forth. Now, what I 
I think, however, for those of us who are new into, uh, into uh, Parliament, uh, like myself, I was elected in 2010, uh, we, we are thinking uh, about where we go you know, post-2015, 20, uh, if, I hope, um, will be the case, we are back in, back in government. And I think we need to be ambitious about where we want to go with the international development agenda. This is, this is a field where Labour has got an incredibly positive uh, um, story to tell. It's led the way around the world uh, with encouraging other countries to increase their aid. Uh, and yet, not enough <coughs> progress has been made uh, in terms of the increase in, in aid. But I also think that we need to shift our focus uh, towards looking at how we tackle global inequality within and between countries. And that's got to be the new frontier for us as a party to work on. Uh, and we are very uh, pleased that the Conservative government is, uh, uh, has been keen to imitate what we've done. I think this provides an opportunity for us to um, be even more bold and ambitious about where we want to go in the future and hope that they follow us. Uh, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing if they follow us and do the right thing. Uh, and in, so in terms of where we want to focus our energy, I think it is going to be about looking at how we encourage the appropriate kind of trade, appropriate kind of governance system uh, that encourages development countries to grow, uh, that spreads the um, opportunities and income potential across, uh, across populations. Uh, and that's where understanding and thinking about how um, economic growth happens within those countries as well as in our own country is going to be critical. Uh, and that's why the, the points that were made both in, uh, in um, Professor Golden's book and in the IPPR report about uh, new forms of global governance systems that actually benefit those at the those who, uh, not just the, 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 those who are wealthy, but spreads the uh, proceeds of growth as it emerges, particularly, it already is happening obviously in the developed, developing countries in the Asian economies, the BRIC countries, but where that is the case, where that will be the case, if we hope in time, in the wealthier countries, or currently developed countries. Uh, so we do need an international system that is much more fit for the 21st century, that recognises developing countries as partners, not uh, not people, not countries that are, have uh, aid provided to them, but the terms of trade are not uh, fit for purpose and and not on not based on uh, partnership and fairness. Uh, and I and I think that has to be central to where we go. Um, as a Western country, and recognizing that the power relationship historically has been imbalanced, and there's still a long way to go to do that. We're in the process of developing our ideas and policies um, for, uh, for our manifesto going forward, uh, and I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts and uh, views on some of this, uh, and I know some of, the, some of the ideas that are coming through will be fed into the Labour Party's uh, policy process that is ongoing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian, and thank you very much indeed for inviting me. I have nothing to promote. I have no policies to promote either. Yes, I work as a main presenter for BBC World News, uh, broadcasting for the rest of the world rather than in Britain now. I used to be diplomatic editor for Channel 4 News, but I think the reason why uh, Ian must have invited me to, to join this discussion today is because of other work I've been doing. 
Um, and I'm not here to promote it, I don't make, get any money out of it, but it comes from uh, Oxford University, from the Reuters Institute for Journalism. It's called Sky Full of Lies and Black Swans. And why have I suddenly put that on the agenda? Not to promote it, to undermine Ian's book, but to say, uh, in the work that I'm doing, um, as, a, as a main presenter, I'm also doing a parallel track. It's about governance, and it's about power. And listening to what Roshanar has just talked about, about governments needing to adopt much faster. That's exactly the kind of thing that I've been pointing out for rather a long time, over 18 or 19 years. And I, my, my comments relate significantly and specifically to Chapter 7, about ideas and the kind of things that, um, that, they, that the book puts on the agenda. And I have to say, Ian, I'm probably now talking about the next edition of your book. Because I don't envy anyone like you having to capture for publication in printed form with all, the, with all the time delays and so on, the reality of what is changing. In the last year, after all, we've had 10 years history in 10 months. And that is what's happening with power. It's what's happening with digital power, particularly. And that's what my work has been about. And I didn't ask to come and sit on this panel. But um, what I'm trying to get over is that those in positions of power and responsibility simply don't get the enormity of the digital interconnectivity that is taking place. Whether in Clapham and Haringey in the middle of August, or in many of the African and other countries as well. Look at what happened with Anna Hazara uh, in India back in April. A 74-year-old social activist gets out his mat, sits in, in the centre of Delhi to take a position on corruption in India. Within 96 hours, Pranab Mukherjee, the Mr. Fixit, the Peter Mandelson of, of Congress Party, had essentially said, hands up, we understand what you're saying. Why? Because literally millions of people had logged on virally in India to this. And it's something that the political class in India had never understood. The same thing happened with TEPCO during the, during the uh, just after the, uh, the, uh, the Fukushima disaster and the tsunami. It's this inability now of both the corporate institutions of power and those in government to understand the enormity of what is happening. Why do I feel confident in sitting here on the record and saying that? Because much of what has happened in the last year, particularly with Egypt, with Libya, now with Syria, and with Iran and so on, is exactly what I've been predicting for many years. But as I say, the most obvious is often the most elusive to those in positions of power. Why didn't Mubarak learn from Ben Ali? Why didn't Gaddafi learn from Mubarak? Why hasn't, why hasn't Assad learned from all of them? I think you will see in this globalized community that's, that's emerging a new, a new power. We should be talking about the media here, Ian, in this kind of chapter. We should now be talking about the public information space. I work in the traditional media, but we're having to change incredibly fast. When there are four and a half billion people who've got one of these, one way or the other, iterations of it, and rightly Ian talks about North Korea, you have to analyze the enormity of what Roshanar has already talked about. But I just want to re-emphasize, it is the way that the matrix of power is changing. Whether you're in downtown London in the middle of August, whether you're in Dalian, a city in, in China, where people take to the streets on a Sunday afternoon because there's been a chemical plant, um, which has been inundated by a typhoon. Whether you're talking about TEPCO, whether you're talking about BP, who were completely wrong-footed by the fact that 22% of the social media in the United States was on one issue only, and it was about BP and Macondo and the Gulf of Mexico. 
They didn't understand this new information space. Now, I'm on the record, but I can tell you that I speak to a large number of gatherings, executive gatherings and government gatherings and others, behind closed doors, where I'm amazed at how slow those in positions of power and responsibility are to understand how <coughs> fundamental this is. And that's why I say we've had 10 years history in 10 months. Okay, it's, a, it's an easy thing to say. But when I see uh, Ian in chapter 733, challenges for knowledge management, that to me is exactly it, because I'd like to emphasize what Roshanara has said. I see great, enorm great empowerment coming. We're seeing it in so many places. Whether you're, it's in Pesa in, in Kenya, or it's the people in Benghazi who rise up against, uh, against Gaddafi. But there are many other political leaders in both developed and developing countries who simply do not want to get this. And I'm not going to mention them on the record, but they'll be pretty clear, some in Africa and elsewhere. And look at what um, even Putin didn't understand in Russia. It was clear in September when he and Medvedev announced the carve-up of power just how irritated a lot of the public were. But I can tell you from inside the Russian institutions of power, there were those of a new generation who wanted to warn Putin about what would happen. And of course it happened before Christmas. We saw the protests in minus 20 degrees and we've seen what happened last week. It is inevitable. It's inexorable. But it seems to be elusive to many in positions of power and responsibility. And that's why I say that I think there is enormous potential for technology. These ad hoc communities which come to together, mobilized within minutes and hours by this. But it's the inabilities, inability now of the structures of power to systemically embrace this. It's not about procurement of technology. It's actually about recalibrating the human software of leadership, whether it be political leadership or corporate leadership. And it's the pressure now from the, the next generation, whether it be the 18-year-olds the or the 38-year-olds, they're getting frustrated, but they're operating within traditional systems of power. And I think in, in some countries, like particularly in Africa, I've heard Kofi Annan on the record, well before what, what he's doing now in Syria, say, if I was a leader in Africa these days, I would be reconsidering precisely how I exercise power. That's not a direct quote, but that's the gist of what I've heard him say publicly. After many months of thinking about this, this was in the middle of last year. And certainly that's something I would subscribe to. And therefore, um, when uh, in this book we're talking about globalization for development, I do see gray clouds, not black clouds, but gray clouds, because of the inability of the systems of government and governance, whether political or corporate, to embrace the speed of this new reality. And I can give you many more examples as well. Look at what's happened in India. 6.1% uh, uh, growth at the moment. It's slumped for many reasons, but one of them is what was mobilized in April of last year by one man about corruption. It's less led to a loss of nerve, quite apart from the fact that there are the issues of the 2G telecoms licenses and 122 of them now being canceled, etc., etc. But look at the impact that that has had on Congress. Look at the impact that that will have on the Indian leadership over the next two years before May 2014, when, which is when there's due to be a new election. These are profound dynamics which most don't want to get their brain around. It's maybe easy for me to sit here and say that. But let me um, bring my thoughts to a close with this. First of all, I think in this new globalization, and Ian has identified this in Chapter 7, but we need to keep pushing it uh, much further. When he talks about the requisite reforms are indeed daunting, but failure to undertake the challenge will undermine any chances 
of an effective multilateral system for managing globalization and development. And the issue is transparency, <coughs> accountability, and good, good governance. These bullets I'm going to give you now uh, help frame what, what, um, what the authors have written here. It's about the new vulnerability of power in this globalized world, this globalized digital world, because a fisherman and a farmer in the Rift Valley or on the Mozambican coast can have as much power as a politician sitting in Maputo or Nairobi. Secondly, it's the expectation of accountability. Remember people in central London uh, or down in Clapham or Haringey or Tottenham during the riots, or, or the criminal activity we should call it now, much of what was going on there was known to many more people than even Scotland Yard and certainly um, the, the, the government uh, in Whitehall, partly because the Prime Minister was, was away. It's forcing accountability in short order. And ultimately, and this is the most difficult thing maybe to push forward, it's creating a deficit of legitimacy because the public in everywhere except North Korea is seeing here, as many of us do here now, is reading the digital text, is now seeing video being streamed on this and is saying, hang on, I know what's going on. Why am I not being told about it by those in positions of power and responsibility? Whether in the developed world, Moscow, well, I think we can call it developed, or in the developing world somewhere in Africa, these are big changes. And most, and I've tested this with many, many people off the record, not for quotation, they are seeing this as, quote, subversive, unquote. Subversion of the systems which have got them into power. And so, that's, those, those are the issues which I want to leave with you. And by and large, there is a mindset of denial. It is not changing fast, even though what is happening is so profound. Thank you very much, Nick. So ring words. It'd be great to sort of get a discussion going about that afterwards. Uh, but before we do so, I'm going to hand over, last but not least, to Jamie Drummond. Thank you. And... Um, I mean, there's so many things that have been raised, not just by the book, but all the comments. I think this should be a fascinating discussion. If I may indulge me for a second, I'm just to explain who we are, because otherwise we're, what I'm about to say may not make a ton of sense. One is a global advocacy organization. <clears throat> it evolved out of uh, something that was a big campaign at the end of the 90s called Jubilee 2000, that will drop the day. <coughs> and I was the global strategist for that campaign. When it was somewhat successful, we didn't achieve everything we sought at the time. I went to America when Bush won the election, and I worked closely with the White House on a series of initiatives uh, on Africa, on multilateral debt relief, uh, which was furthering the debt cancellation, on HIV-AIDS, on malaria, on TB, on education, and so on, <clears throat> and a whole series of initiatives on corruption. Um, and it gave me a, uh, an insight from having worked in the UK political system to get with, with the early days of then New Labour in the late 90s through to working with a, a bunch of neocons in DC, two very different political environments, policy environments, and ways of getting things done. And we're now trying to scale up that kind of advocacy globally uh, in capitals around Europe and the world. And I say that briefly to explain where I'm coming from because I view our work as having been trying to make uh, globalization work for development especially the poorest, for, for the best part of the last 15 years. And there's some amazing news. Uh, you talked about the 10 years of history in the last 10 months, and I'll come to that in a second. But let's just talk about the last 10 years for a, for a moment. Um, the last 10 years, approximately those of the Millennium Development Goals, have been quite a remarkable period of progress. 
and I, I think it's too easily forgotten and, and uh, <laughs> almost unfashionable to talk about good news these days. Um, there's been some amazingly good news. There are 46 million more children um, have been through school in Africa because of, largely because of debt cancellation. Um, HIV AIDS, we did a, an enormous campaign on that at the beginning of the last decade, which has now put 6.6 .6 million people on these antiretrovirals, whereas when we started working there were none um, on any uh, publicly provided programs. Most of those people would now be dead and they're not. Um, malaria, um, there's been a huge campaign on that the last four or five years and malarial death rates have halved in a dozen countries in Africa. And there's many other cases like this, 5.4 million deaths averted from vaccines. All of these, all of these things, these, these things happen because people like yourselves got together, developed some, some decent policy. Um, the evidence base was put together. It combined with new technologies. Then campaigns were funded. Um, campaigns were put together. Again, people like yourselves would have joined those campaigns, whether it was GB2000 or Make Property History. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying all of this because I think there's a, a companion book to this book, which is probably more sort of campaigning for globalization, for development which desperately needs to be written, because I don't think a lot of how these things were achieved is well understood, it's not well studied, and I think it's incredibly important, it may even be as important, if not more, than books like this, because um, it's often taken for granted. And to a lot of what Nick was saying about uh, the new opportunities of this technology-driven drive for transparency and accountability, that is absolutely right. And that is a lot of what, where we're putting our, our campaigning efforts now. Um, and the reason I just talked a bit about history the last 10 years is because um, that great noble gift we decided to give ourselves at the turn of the millennium called the Millennium Development Goals, which are ludicrously ambitious, 15-year um, set of targets that was trying to make up for the fact that during the 90s we were running around like headless chickens to all these international development summits where everyone was saying, my issue is more important than yours, mate. So the malaria people thought their issue was more important than the AIDS people. They thought their issue was more important than the girls' education people over there, or the gender equality people over there, or the climate people over there. Everyone was fighting with each other. And we decided to stop that and try and put them into one package um, and try and cut out this kind of, um, you know, uh, this competitiveness and this robbing Peter to pay Paul attitude. And I think we need to not forget the breadth of the sort of chutzpah of that idea that we were permitted to have because it was the millennium and it felt extraordinary. We mustn't lose some of that energy, and, and we are losing a lot of that energy, as we approach the end of that 15-year time horizon. In 2015, there may be a new government here, but there will also be um, um, a, an enormous global effort to figure out what should replace the millennium development goals. Now, if your book has its impact, and I'm sure you want it to have, a lot of your ideas will presumably be feeding into what should replace the Millennium Development Goals, but I encourage you all to try and engage heavily in that debate. Um, but do so with a kind of caveat, which is, please, as you do so, campaign to finish off the Millennium Goals as best we can. Um, development is full of half-finished projects, um, people running after the next shiny bauble and actually not seeing through the thing they said they would do in the first place. Development NGOs are particularly reprehensibly culpable of this kind of behavior because they're desperately driven by uh, the need to market themselves to constituencies that run around after different issues. So they have to run off, round off those issues. So they often don't finish off what they said they would do. So it is incredibly important that everyone holds, um, if you like, the international development community, in particular NGOs, 
as well as governments and corporations and partnerships, accountable for doing the best job we can between now and 2015 on the Millennium Goals. And then also have a process by which we design the replacement for them. That is also very different from what gave us the Millennium Development Goals. Because of all of the new technology, the new transparency accountability drives that are up there, um, we could do something extraordinary this time. We could actually consult everyone on what they think of the first 15 years of our new millennium. What did it achieve? How did globalization work for you or did it? Ask people their opinions, um, the poorest people especially, because it's supposed to be all in their name. A lot of people get employed on their name. Um, and say, okay, so what do we think should replace it? And let's have an evidence base of what people actually think would be the, the right set of ideas to campaign on for the next 15 years or 25 years through to 2030. And it could be actually a bottom-up process. Millennium goals weren't bad. They were a set of pretty ambitious but also political compromises. They're only things like halving extreme poverty, which is a lot in 15 years. But, you know, it's, uh, we've actually made amazing progress on that. But what should be those next uh, set of things beyond? On transparency and accountability, uh, well, actually, just before I go, the last 10 years, one of the key things that's happened, if you take, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, um, aid to sub-Saharan Africa, which is a hotly contested subject. You said it's an um, sort of unmitigated good. A lot of people disagree with that and dislike groups like ours because we campaign for 0.7 and get bipartisan agreement for it in countries like this, which then means that um, taxpayers' money is going overseas when they want it at home, and that's a huge issue. And we're having daily fights with the Daily Mail on this. Um, and, uh, you know, long may that continue because we've got a great debate going on in this country, and hopefully it will improve the quality of the aid that we give. We should give it but it will also improve its quality and link it more tightly to some of these kinds of policy proposals that you put, Ian, in your book. But in the last 10 years, while we campaigned for the increase in aid, for example, for sub-Saharan Africa, it's gone from $17 billion to about $42 billion over that period of time. Okay. That's the result of all of that campaign. Fairly good, uh, especially if it's going into good things, and much of it has. So well done, everyone. During that same period of time, Domestic resources mobilized within sub-Saharan African nations has gone from 70, $70 billion to $330 billion. That's where the money is. And it's yes, a lot of it's about uh, taxes on and levies on natural resource exploitation and the use of that. But it's also just it's on telecoms, on banking, on services, on lots of other activities. That's where the money is. And how we can link um, the increases in aid you talk about um, and we have uh, one, two improvements in policies for the domestic resources. Um, I think will be a key part of how we enact a lot of the policies in this in this paper. Um, you, you talked about uh, China and its model and its influence, Rishnara, on countries in the developing world. We have a deep and complex relationship with, uh, for example, the, the guy who runs Ethiopia, Melissanol. A fascinating test of a lot of this stuff will be, for example, when the World Economic Forum goes to Addis Ababa, which it will be in May. It's never been there before. And it'll be a huge test because people like him are looking at China and thinking, actually, uh, North Korea and not being connected, um, I might want that for some people in my country. And I'm not <coughs> sure the connections in Ethiopia are as good as they could be for the, because there's an element of state control going on there. Um, so I, I think it's not just North Korea. I think the shades are gray in other places. But by the way, that developmental state in Ethiopia, they've halved hunger. And they've halved infant mortality in the last 15 years. So, you know, with that uh, state control, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of progress that has probably also been delivered by, by that developmental state that is also quite worried 
about the possibility of democracy really happening. And how, how those sort of things play out in countries like Ethiopia will be a key test of how you know, a technology and accountability that, that people are demanding is actually delivered by things like telecoms when telecoms are not properly liberalized in a country like, like Ethiopia. Should we, for example, only be campaigning on the liberalization of telecoms in Ethiopia as the particular in, uh, you know, intervention that must, uh, must be the next stage in that country's development? Anyway, there's so many things we could all talk about and I look forward to continuing this conversation.